0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are in a series called Unsafe Places. You just saw the sermon bumper for that. We are studying the book of James. And there's 11 specific ideas that James teaches us. James is the younger brother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He grew up with Jesus, but he did not believe Jesus was the Messiah until Jesus had died crucified, rose from the dead, and specifically came back to show himself alive to people like his little brother James. So uh, we're studying this book. It's the early Christian manual, if you will. It was very probably the first letter that the early church passed around and learned how to be the church. When you don't know, you don't know. And they had never been a church before. There had never in the human existence uh, uh, of humanity been a church. They had been Old Testament Hebraic uh, models and temples and things like that. But there had never been a church. So James was trying to write a significant uh, idea about how to be the church. And he gave us 11 things that Christians are supposed to be. I've went through uh, several of them already. This morning we're going to be in James chapter 5. And it's, it's one of those sermons that uh, a lot of preachers and a lot of church people get nervous about, especially in the climate that we find ourselves in. And the reason being is because what James is going to expose to us is that our Christian faith should not only impact how we talk, but how we live. Not just where we are on Sunday mornings, but how we react and act everywhere we go. And so one of those things is how do you manage every area of your life? We talk a lot about managing our relationships, but one of the things that James is going to talk about this morning is that you have resources. And the way you interact with your resources says a lot about how you feel about this faith that you have. So I'm going to begin this morning in James chapter 5 in verse 1, and I'm going to talk to everybody in verse 1. Look here, you rich people. Isn't that all of you? Oh, I thought I was going to meet with some of you after service. If I saw a hand go up and say, yeah, that's me, I was going to say, okay. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure, this corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen... Hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay and cries of those who harvest your fields who have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves to the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Some translations don't say do not resist you. Some translations say cannot resist you that'll become significant in a few moments I want to begin this morning by showing you that Jesus spoke often about our possessions when you talk about possessions it's not just your finances it's the things that you have in this life and he talked a lot about possessions as a matter of fact 16 of the 38 parables in the New Testament deal specifically with how somebody is supposed to handle money and possessions in the Gospels one out of every ten verses, that's 288 verses in all, deal with the subject of what we own, either money or possessions. Now, we live in America. And in 1864, they put something on our coins that says, In God we trust. Uh huh. And in 1951, it showed up on our Bills before 1951 it did not appear on your bills I find it interesting that our currency is connected through our country with our Heavenly Father I find it interesting that our country who was founded on religious liberty and freedom thought that we should connect what we own with who gives it to us so somebody say amen So, the question that I want to answer for you this morning is, how does faith work with wealth? And some of you are saying, well, I can check out of this sermon because I'm not wealthy. Hold on just a minute. Because I'm going to hit everybody in this room in a few moments. Because we need to learn how to deal with every decision that we make in a God way. And and, and by that, I mean it's not just about finances or possessions. I mean I need to talk to my wife in a God manner. I need to speak to my children in a godlike manner. I need to talk to people when, I, uh, when they wait on me at the table when I go out to eat. I need to speak to people in a godlike manner. And so what happens is when we start examining ourselves through the Word of God, we discover either we worship God with our money or we worship our money. Oh, it got quiet that fast? You already checked on me that quickly? Listen, you worship God with your money. Your, your checkbook tells me a whole lot more about uh, who you are as a person than your prayer journal does. Because you, if you show me where you spend your money, I'll show you what has your heart. Because Jesus said wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And, and so when, when we think about who we are as a Christian and how we're supposed to live our faith out loud, that's what James's book is about. That's what his letter is about. It's about how to live your faith out loud. To, that everybody you see when you leave their presence, they say, Wow, that's what a Christian's supposed to sound like. That's what a Christian acts like. That's how a Christian treats people. Now, I'm not alone in this room when I can say that I've left people with a bad taste in their mouth before. People that knew I was a believer, people that knew I was a person of faith, people that knew maybe I was a pastor, and when I walked away from them, I realized, because the Holy Spirit checked me and said, I didn't say that just exactly the way I should have said that. I didn't react to that exactly the way I should have. Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? Good. I, I thought I was in a room full of hypocrites. That my people are here. Thank you. Thank you for showing up to church this morning. No, sometimes we don't live our faith out loud, the way we're supposed to, and we don't do things the way God intended for us to do them. And that's what James's book is about. James is telling us that it's never been about the amount of money that you have. It's all about the relationship you have with the money. It's never been about how much you possess. it's your relationship with those possessions. See, I'm going to tell you some things this morning that you probably have never heard or thought about before. For instance, there's no set amount of money in the Bible that will make you what's called wealthy. There's also no set amount of money in the Bible that will make you have trouble in your life. But rest assured, you can find trouble in money. They can cause you, it can cause you problems. And like many things about our Christian faith, it comes down to our heart because our faith is about relationship. And so we have to say, I know there's a lot of movement out in the world today, and I'm going to, listen, I'm not going to get political. A lot of new faces here, and you don't know me. But there's a lot of voices in this world today that have a negative idea about capitalism and how people have money and get money and how many people have money and how many people don't have money. But can I tell you that money is okay? Can I tell you that it's okay for you to have money? Can I tell you that it's all right if God blesses you to be an entrepreneur? It's okay if God gives you skills and talents and abilities to make wealth. And there's nothing wrong with people having great wealth. Can I hear somebody say amen? You know why? Because money's never been the problem. Having a lot of money has never been a problem. If you have a lot of money today, God bless you. I'm happy for you. And and there's a thing uh, that that I should explain to you, that it is a great thing to have the blessing of God on your life. And and, and so when James begins chapter 5, he says this, and it almost sounds accusatory. Hey, you rich people. That's a pretty strong worded uh, testimony, is it not? And James is... He's jumping in our face, and he's giving us a principle that I want to share some facts with you about. Number one, a recent poll that I read was talking about money. And they asked people, how much money a year would you need to feel rich? Answer, $300,000. Okay, I would think so. If I was making $300,000 a year, I'd probably feel pretty rich too. But does it really take that much? Really? Because if you look at the census data, the median income in America is less than $60,000. Isn't money a funny thing? I, I, I need five times the average to feel rich. Why do I need that much money? So we're forced to ask ourselves some serious questions like, When James says, hey, you rich people, do you say, hey, that's me? Does your ears perk up and say, he's talking right there? Well, let me help you for a minute. First of all, I'm going to tell you some things in the beginning of this sermon that is going to be very specifically guided toward your perspective. How you see things means the world about how you interpret and internalize things. James is trying to get us to understand that when he says, hey, you rich people, it should not exclude everybody in this room because you're not the next starting quarterback for the Steelers. Because when you see them sign those gigantic, enormous contracts, you're like, boy, it would be nice. And you think you're not rich. You're excluded from this testimony. You're excluded from this directive because you say, that's not me. So let me help you with your perspective. Amen? I grew up poor. I don't say that because I want you to feel sorry for me. I'm just trying to give you a different perspective. Because maybe some of you didn't grow up like I did. Because some of you are upset that you have a detached garage from your house. And you have to go outside to start your car. Aw. Because the house I grew up in had a detached bathroom. And it moved a few times during my childhood. And you had to go outside to do something more important than starting your car. So it's all about perspective. I can remember the first time I ever took a shower. Don't look at me in that tone of voice because I did take baths. I said, I can remember the first time I ever took a shower. I was a freshman in high school. I could not figure out. I was in a hotel, and I couldn't figure out how to get the water to come out there. So I did what I always did. I ran a tub and got in it. I found out later that if you pull that thing, that's what makes the water come out. I didn't know what I didn't know. Uh, I also remember when, my, when me and Pastor Amanda began dating. I was, a, I was a junior in high school, much more mature man by then. And I had, I had blown up the engine in my car and her dad was allowing me to rebuild my engine in his garage, which was detached, by the way. Fridays were date nights. She would not allow me to continue to put piston rings on for our date night. I had to to get the grease off of me and spend time with her, so I had to shut down my rebuild to go in. And and they were were good to me. Not only was they letting me use their garage, but they were going to let me use their bathroom to take a shower so I could spend date night with her. And I walked into that bathroom, and they had a shower. And I said, this is nice. When I say I married up, I know what I'm talking about. They also, on Friday nights, ordered pizza. And we had pizza from a store on date night. You know, I had at my house on Fridays all the leftovers that had accumulated through the week. Mom would revisit all of that on Friday because we didn't throw out nothing. So you'd have a little bit of meatloaf and a little bit of mashed potatoes and a few peas and a little bit of cream corn, and it would all make a reappearance come Friday. So they had pizza. They took vacations that didn't involve a tent. And they didn't eat Vianney sausages out of the can either. So when I tell you I got an upgrade, I know what I'm talking about. So, so, so when we got married, I got married, I was 19, she was 17, she was a senior in high school. When, when we got married, uh, we could not maintain the lifestyle she was accustomed to, but we could mine. I still felt blessed because, listen, we had a thermostat on the wall. Shut your mouth. Summertime, you could get cool air without opening windows and leaving the screen door flap. What? Wintertime, you didn't have to go out and carry in coal, split no wood. You just turned a button. Woo! glory, the Lord has been good to me. I mean, so it's all about perspective. My wife is looking at this single wide trailer we're living in saying, man, what'd I get myself into? I'm looking at this thing saying I have arrived I am George Jefferson (laughs) moving on up it's all about perspective it's all about how you see things so when when James says hey you rich people you say well that ain't me well not so fast because they did a survey and they asked 1500 Americans what they thought the the global median income was in other words if you put all the incomes around the world together, what would be the average? You know what the uh, 1,500 Americans said? Oh, I'd say about $21,000. The reality is about a tenth of that. $2,200 a year is what the global average income is because there are people today living in abject poverty that look at your life and say, must be nice. You don't feel like you're rich because you're not viewing it through the lens of other people who have a totally different worldview than you do. So, in other words, who is James talking to here? First of all, let's put it in context. He's talking to the earliest Christians. When Jesus died, resurrected, and went back to heaven, he left a mess. Listen, I love him. He, I talk to him like this. Okay, He left a mess behind because he told them, I'm going away and you're going to have to handle this yourselves. And all of these people are early believers, and they didn't know what church they are supposed to go to yet. We had not yet segmented into Methodists and Baptists and Pentecostals and Catholics and Church of Christ and Lutherans. and. Prod- we, had, we hadn't done all that. So they're all showing up in the same place, and they're all trying to worship this This Jesus, and nobody's got any theology, nobody has a Bible, nobody's got any kind of teaching or learning, so they're all showing up together. And you know who's in this crowd? Landowners, bosses, people who had workers that worked for them, that they signed their paychecks and gave them at the end of the week. They're there, but also the people that they had been swindling all these years, people that they had been mistreating all these years, their workers, their slaves, they're also in this church. They're also trying to serve Jesus and figure this thing out. And then there's the woman that dyes the the fine fabrics who makes wealth. uh, over uh, If she's a purple dyer or a scarlet dyer, she, she, she would have great wealth. And then there's the prostitute who came to know Jesus, and she's coming in, and she has nothing. There's the widow who has nothing, and she's living in abject poverty. And they're all under the same roof. And James sends this letter out and says, I want you all to know. That no matter how little or how much you have, you're all responsible for the same thing. Because, hear me, generosity has never been an amount. It's always been an attitude. I have met some of the most generous people that you would ever care to know, and they had next to nothing. And I've met some pretty ungodly, stingy folks that could drive a different car every day of the week, but they did not know how to use their resources. So, I'm gonna give you three perspectives that people have about their stuff. Ready? One is selfishness. Selfishness is what's mine is mine. The second view is stealing. What's yours is mine. And the third is stewardship. What's mine? Is his. So these are the three different ways that James is going to show us in the Word today, because and I feel like it's a timely message because there is a there is a lot of talk these days about the uber wealthy. They call them the one percent, and that they should not have so much money, and that people should uh, have uh, ways to to make sure that they have to take some of their wealth and distribute it to other people, but I. I'm going to say some things that might offend some people. I apologize in advance, but the studies are very clear that people that don't know how to handle money, throwing money at them is not the answer to their problems. Proverbs teaches us that unwise people blow through not only their money but their children's and their grandchildren's inheritance because a fool and his money is soon parted. So, in other words, if you keep giving money to fools, money won't solve their problem because they need wisdom more than they need finances. And what James is addressing here is that you can be godly and poor or godly and rich and vice versa. Just because you're poor doesn't mean you do right by God. And just because you're rich doesn't mean you use your resources in a godlike manner. And you can be like Jesus whether you're rich or you're poor. I'm going to say that again. You can be like Jesus whether you're rich or you're poor. Do you know why? Because the Bible says Jesus was, he went through everything you and I went through. So let me give you some perspective. When Jesus was on earth, he was poor. Is Jesus poor today? Somebody say no. Your neighbor's not convinced, so you need to tell them, listen, heaven's bougie. I don't know if anybody's told you or not, but listen, heaven is bougie. They have got it going on up there. They got streets made out of gold. They got walls made out of jasper. They've got gates made out of pearl. They got 12 gates with gates that are 12 feet high, made out of pearl. What size is the oysters in heaven that you can get them size pearls out of? So, so listen. <laughs> so uh, that's what, listen, ain't nobody in heaven missing where they used to live. You can live in the nicest neighborhood, in the nicest side of town, and go to heaven, and you'd be like, no, nah, I ain't going back there. That was the slums. Okay, so, so the real message here in James 5 is he's talking about the ungodly rich, the way they get what they have, and then they steal from those that they are responsible for. What he's talking about is people who manage other people. And he says, if you have somebody who works for you, if you're godly, you need to take care of them. You should never rob from people who depend on you because he, this is what he's talking about how he says you got your, your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corrupted. Cor- he, listen, listen. He calls, he calls them, listen to what he says. You have hoarded and they will testify against you because they are corro- corroded treasures. Corroded treasures. You know what you don't find in aisle two at Hobby Lobby? sweatshirts that says I'm corroded treasures nobody ever goes and says I need to buy my, my sister a, a, a mug for her birthday I'm going to get this corroded treasures mug but, but he, sa- he says you people who have hoarded things and he calls them he, ca- he calls them evil because they did not use their resources for good and the point is you can be godly and rich or you can be ungodly and rich and vice versa it's a personal issue that's why I don't harp on giving. I never have, because it's a personal issue. Giving offerings to God is between you and God. Giving tithing to God is between you and God. It's never been a commitment to his church. It's been a commitment to him and and, and I can like, I can like, I can like make you feel guilty for not giving, and that'll last for a minute or two, a service or two, an offering or two, but it won't be long sustaining because you're giving. Grudgingly, And Paul says that God loves cheerful givers. And that's not just with finances. He loves people like Sarah who loves to smile at people because she just gives that electric smile everywhere she goes. makes people feel good. So she's giving something. Everywhere she goes, she's letting Jesus come through her because she may not be writing checks and passing out $100 bills, but she, makes, she gives you something more valuable. She makes you feel good. Amen. So, so he says God loves a cheerful Giver, Okay, and, and so we read this and somebody undoubtedly will be thinking I don't have more than I use James says we're hoarders Let's talk about that Because we are Americans America We got stuff in our house we got stuff in our garage. Then we got storage units for the stuff that won't fit in our house and our gar- We've got food in our refrigerator. Then we got food in the cabinet. We got food in the pantry. Some of us have another extra refrigerator in the garage for the stuff that won't fit in the first refrigerator. And while we are dying of diabetes and uh, obesity, there's people around the globe that are dying of starvation. And really—and we are the people that go and buy pallets full of stuff at Sam's Club while other people can't afford to buy rice for their babies. And if we got that much, it really wouldn't hurt us to share. And some of y'all are looking at me in that tone of voice, and I know you're thinking, did you really come to church today and, Pastor, talk about your money and your weight? Because all of us could few, use, you know, we could all afford to lose a few pounds and be a little more generous. And, and, and the pastor seriously call out my weight and my money. If that's what you were looking for when you were on your way to church this morning, prayer answered, you're in the right place. You are welcome. But what he's saying is that some of you enjoy what God has given you by being, uh, by being greedy. But some of you are great at enjoying what God gives you because you share it. Some of you are great at that already. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with you because some of you, and if you're not, if you're not generous, you know somebody who is because God's blessed your life and, and deposited somebody in your life that is a blessing to you. And, and that's why he's telling us, he said, God's been so good to you, you should never steal from one another. You should never be trying to take what is not yours. If you own a business, if you're in management, How you treat other people who are dependent on you and the choices you make is the way that God is looking at you when you say, God, I give you my life. He's not just looking at your commitment on Sunday morning. He's looking at how you treat people who depend on you. I remember when I was young, my father was a truck driver, and he was driving a a gravel truck, a dump truck. And he was working for a man who was very wealthy, owned a lot of businesses. And he would, he would pull up to the uh, pit, the gravel pits, and get loaded. And they were to take the gravel to the job site. And because he wasn't in control of how much they put on the truck, the man who owned the business wanted more, more, more. So they would overload the truck. My dad kept getting tickets that the owner of the company was supposed to pay because they were the ones loading the truck. My father kept getting these tickets. They're called overload tickets. The owner refused to pay them. My father lost his driving privileges until the day he died in the whole state of Virginia because he wasn't allowed to drive there because he was either going to have to pay these enormous fines or go to jail in order to get his driving privileges back all because the person who was supposed to take care of him didn't take care of him. And that's exactly what James is talking about. He said people who are poor can't take you to court. They can't sue you. They can't defend themselves. So, you who are rich are taking advantage of those who are poor, and it's wrong. And he's trying to bring this whole church together and give them perspective that just because you have it doesn't mean you should lord it over other people. Can somebody say amen? So, I'm going to give you, I'm going to go through these very quickly. People have different relationships with their stuff. Do you have any stuff? Yeah, yeah I, got, I got some stuff. I have so much stuff that I sell stuff. <laughs> Listen, I go out. I've, I've made a business out of this for the last 10 years. I go out and buy other people's stuff, and then I put it online and sell their stuff to other people who need stuff that's trying to buy other people's stuff because they don't have enough stuff in their house. And I've made a business out of this for 10 years. I just resell things. I can look at something, tell you what it's worth. Somebody's selling it for a dollar. I can sell it for 100. I put $99 in my pocket. That stuff passes through me. I'm just the middleman. I'm not a collector of anything except the dollar-dollar bills, y'all. Somebody say amen. But, but a lot of people have different relationships with stuff. The first person we're going to talk about is the hoarder. This is the person who keeps everything, gets rid of nothing. They, their money in their wallet, George Washington still has black hair. This is the hoarder. The second person is the spender. They're the exact opposite. They can't keep nothing. The weird part is they usually marry each other. This is why James Ramsey has a business. Because the one that don't want to let go of anything finds and falls in love with the one who won't hold on to anything, and I spend the rest of my ministry giving marriage counseling to them. The spender is the kind of person who, buying something new, becomes an emotional event. Like, like when that Amazon package shows up on the porch, <sighs> like they have never felt closer to heaven. Because they order so many things and they all come in that brown box with a smile, that they say, What could it be? And they don't have to wait for their birthday or Christmas to get surprised because they have ordered so much, they never know what the package is. What could it be? That's the spender. The next one is the peekaboo. The peekaboo. Is the one that says, I hate bills, I don't do math, I, 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 I don't want to be bothered. When the bills come in, they shove it in a drawer until it turns purple. They go way past the red cutoff notices. They, 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 this one's when, they, when the bill gets purple is when it's serious. Their idea of balancing their checkbook is going to the ATM and see if they can get anything out. This is the peekaboo. They hide. They play peekaboo with all their bills, with all their budget, with their finances. If if the if the card gets declined, I guess I need to go to work. And then we've got one that handles their stuff like this. They're called the manipulator. If I haven't made you upset yet, this one's your turn. Because the manipulator is the person that likes to give stuff, but they always have string attached. So I'm going to talk to you people that have adult children. If you give your children something, if you're going to be generous and help them out, don't use what you give them to try to control them. Because God has never given you a thing as your your heavenly father and then used it as as a way to manipulate you. That's not the model that he set for you. So if you're going to bless them, bless them. But don't give them money and then try to control them because what happens is it makes people anxious and nervous to ever receive anything else from you. Somebody say amen. Because you know as soon as you take it that one day you're going to have to pay it back. Don't forget when I paid your bill. Don't forget when I gave you gas money. Oh, don't you remember I let you borrow my car? Don't you remember when, I need, when you needed me to help you move? I helped. Does anybody know people like that? Don't raise your hands and don't look around. Look right here. Because the Bible says the borrower becomes slave to the lender. And that's not the relationship that God wants us to have. The next one is the show off. This is why social media was invented. So people could take pictures of stuff they are bought that they can't afford to impress people they don't know or don't like. This is the entire purpose of having social media. This is the person who just likes showing off what they have bought And I'm going to be honest with you. I've I've done a lot of uh, research on this over the years. Most people who buy things impulsively because of name brand recognition eventually end up regretting the purchase. They eventually end up regretting that they went out and bought the Maserati. The Chevy would have done. Because they still get you from where you were going to where you would uh, want to be. And, and they end, eventually end up regretting it. Now, a lot, of people are just, uh, a lot of people don't regret it because they didn't buy it to show it off. That's different. But people who just want to show off, I've got a $1,000 pair of shoes. And you find out that those $1,000 pair of shoes still make your bunions ache? You're like, why did I do that? I could have went and got some, some uh, Bobos for this. Pumas would have worked just fine. Sometimes you look at people's vacation pictures, you're like, wow, they must be killing it. Not necessarily. Some people have everything leveraged. And then there's other people that are allergic to debt. They just don't want to be in debt for anything. And this is exactly why you can give some people money, but if you don't give them wisdom, giving them money won't help them. Because money in the hands of a fool don't fix anything. And last but not least, we have the giver. The giver. This is a person who uses their money and everything they possess in a way that loves and honors the one who gave it to them. Because they never forgot where the blessing came from. See, James is talking about stewardship and he's using it in a third perspective. And he says, what's mine is his. At first he, he talked about stealing but yours is mine. And, and, and then he talked about being selfish and greedy and, and hoarding. He says, what's well, mine is mine. Now he's saying, stewardship means I'm in management. I'm not the owner. Everything I have belongs to him. And so he can tell me what to do with it because it was never mine to start with. And this is the greatest blessing a parent will ever receive because when you realize those children were a gift from God, But they're not yours. I know you gave birth to them. I know you raised them. I know your heart is connected to them. But God, they're his child before they were your child. And if you will learn how to give ownership to him and you just manage the resource, it will free you up. Because stewardship is a biblical way of looking through a God-shaped lens. Here's something you need to know. When you get personal with God, God will always require things of you. Because he knows that in our hearts, we're selfish. We're just built that way. The Sin has twisted us and manipulated our souls into this thing that's ugly, and we want to hoard, and we want to keep, and we want to steal. Listen, if, have you ever had a little boy? Any of y'all ever raised little boys? Okay, okay. So they don't tell you this when you get ready to bring them home. But most little boys are suicidal. okay. They want to grab the sharpest thing they can find, climb to the highest point in the room, and stick it in as many things as they can stick it in. They have a death wish, so I say amen. And little boys also don't have to be told to be selfish. It's just in them. You can come into the room. Little Johnny will have the cookie jar sitting between his legs be elbow deep in it with chocolate and crumbs all over his face, and you say, Johnny, did you eat the cookies? No. Right now, over in the nursery, there's a little Johnny going over to your baby, talking him on the head and still in the truck, because they saw it first and they want to play with it. You don't have to teach this. Children just have it inside of them, and you do too. And that's why, that's why James is saying, he said, you got to deal with these things and let the Holy Spirit get it out of you because we tend to think what I have is mine. How many of you like spending other people's money? Every teenage girl, raise your hand. Because I've raised one, still raising one, I know good and well. Teenage girls love to spend other people's money, especially when it's daddy's. <laughs> what God says is, every dollar you spend, you're spending my money. It wasn't yours to begin with. i let you steward it. i let you manage it. I gave it to you to be a blessing to yourself and other people, but it was never yours. You're always spending God's money. And this is why we're supposed to give with no strings attached. Amen. So I want to show you something before I get out of your way. The reason James brings this up is for two things. I've already told you about perspective. The second reason he brings it up is because he wants us to learn about submission. Okay? When you joined the military, I was never in the military. Jared was, uh, but I've read a lot of books by people. Many of you were in the military. One of the things that they, they put you through so much trauma during basic training, is because they want you to be totally submissive. They want to tear you down of all the worldviews that that existed before they got you. Why? Because they want you to be totally submissive to their commands. If you're on a battlefield and they say duck, they don't want you to ask why. Because it could cost you your head and the person that you're responsible for. It, it, It could be very dangerous if you... Spend your, your military career like most teenagers. Well, why? They don't want you to ask why. They want you to be obedient to commands. God wants us to be submissive. He wants us to be totally submissive. And the problem that he has, and, and one of the, listen, God don't need none of your money. He just don't. He, he, he owns it anyway. The Bible says he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. All the gold and silver are mine, saith the Lord. So he doesn't need your money. You need to give God permission and and be submissive to him through your finances why because most people the last thing to get saved on them is their wallet and and here's what God God wants you to be so submissive to him that when he tells you duck you don't ask why he wants you to be able to be a blessing to everybody that you meet be a blessing to the world and he wants you to get out of harm's way instead of questioning why he told you to move I'm going to teach you something out of Daniel chapter 6, and then I'll get out of your way. Uh, God's people have been living in in slavery for several years. I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but if you want to go back and read it at some point, go back and read Daniel chapter 6. God's people have been living in slavery for several years, and the Persians have taken over, and they have a new king, and his name is Darius. Darius loves Daniel. Daniel is at least 75 years old, and he's still killing it at work. I mean, he is so good at his job that Darius makes him the supervisor of everybody. So he shows up earlier than everybody else. He treats everybody that works for him fairly. He does a good job. He makes sure his job is done before he goes. And he treats people who, look, who looked up to him and worked for him correctly. Daniel is living his faith out loud and his relationship with God is so integrated into his life that it influences the way he talks and his decision-making and his management style and what happens is this some of the people who work with Daniel get jealous they don't like that Daniel is getting promotion and they don't like that Daniel don't steal because they've been stealing the king's money and they want Daniel to start acting like them. And they don't like that Daniel has this work ethic because he's making everybody else look bad. Can I tell you that when you have a strong work ethic, lazy people are always going to be sideways with you. Can I just add that in? Uh, you, people are always going to be upset with you when you work hard and they don't want to. That's, it's just going to be a fact of, of, of being in the world today. Daniel had a system that every Three to six hours, he would stop whatever he was doing, open the windows toward Jerusalem, he would get on his knees, and he would pray. He did it three times a day. These conspirators, these jealous co-workers knew it. So they went to Darius the king, and they said, hey, I think you should be worshipped like a god, and I think anybody in this kingdom that won't bow down and worship you ought to be thrown to the lions. Darius says, that sounds pretty good because I like being worshipped. And he signs this order that anybody who won't worship me and me alone, if you pray to any other god, you'll be thrown to the lions. He did not know that Daniel had this practice of praying. As soon as Daniel opened his window to Jerusalem, got down on his knees and began to pray, his jealous co-workers came along and called him and said, we're going to ta- go tell now, we're going to run tell that. Darius didn't want to do it, but his order had already been signed. So he had to have Daniel, who he loved and appreciated, thrown to the lions. You know the story. Daniel could have ordered pizza that night. The Bible says an angel showed up and closed the mouths of the lions. That when, they, when, when Darius showed up, the Bible says that Darius took Ambien and Tylenol PM and couldn't sleep at night. I mean, the Bible don't say that. That's my version. But it said he couldn't sleep at night. <laughs> And he stayed up all night. He ran down to the lion's den the next morning. He looked in. He says, Daniel, are you alive? And Daniel came out without a scratch on him. And he says, an angel of the Lord showed up and closed the mouth of the lions to show that God was mighty. Yeah. So Darius had the ones that tried to get Daniel thrown to the lions, thrown to the lions. And the lions decided they looked better than that bony preacher. (laughs) And they feasted on the... (laughs) on the co-workers, and that's how the story ends. Daniel was cornered because he was living his faith out loud. He was cornered, and this story shows us that sometimes you can do everything right and everything still go horribly wrong. Hello? You can be faithful and still get thrown to the lions. Mm -hmm. But what it also shows is that God will deliver surrendered people. I'm going to say it again. If you get the right perspective and you learn how to surrender yourself, God will deliver surrendered people. He doesn't always show up for people that are greedy, that are self-serving, that doesn't ever look outside their own world. But when you are surrendered to God, you can go into a lion's den and say, I ain't got nothing to fear because I have given my whole self to God. And if I'm here, that means that God wants me to be here. And he didn't bring me this far to let me fall now. The only reason I'm here is because God opened the door and I walked through it. The only reason I'm here is because he has protected me and kept me. And and no matter what comes against me, the adversary has made his designs, but God has a plan for my life. And no matter what, when the water comes against me, it shall not overtake me. When the flames rise up, I shall not be burned because God has brought me to this place and I'm safe in him. So this is you. This is you. And, 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 and when we have all turned every bit of us over to him, lions can't hurt you and giants can't harm you and walls can't stand in your way. And I want to show you a picture and tell you a story. This is a picture that used to hang in the Louvre in Paris. This picture has a name and it's, it's named Checkmate. And it's basically a picture. The artist painted a picture of a man who is in a battle with Satan. Satan is the one with the feather in his hat. And he's in a chess match for his soul. And if he loses the match, the devil gets his soul. And the reason he has his hand on his head is because he's realizing that he's in checkmate. And he's lost the battle with the devil. I said it used to hang in the Louvre. And it's not there anymore. The reason is that one time they were given a tour of the Louvre and they brought a bunch of professional athletes in and they were showing all of the artwork to these athletes. And among the athletes was a world champion chess player. And when the group came to this picture, the man described the photo exactly the way I just described it to you. That there's a man, and he just realized he has lost the battle for his soul, that he is in checkmate, and the devil has won. And the group moved on. And after a while, they realized that the grand champion chess player hadn't came with them. And they came back, and they said, hey, we've moved on. We, we're, we're seeing a part. And he says, I have a problem. He says, what, what's the problem? He says, well, you know I'm a grand champion chess player and I have devoted my life to playing this game. He says, yes, I understand. He says, well, there's a problem with the f- picture. He says, what's the problem? He says, well, either they need to change the picture or they need to change the name because I've been standing here studying it to confirm what I believed when I first saw it. And what in reality looks like as the end of a man who has been cornered, his king still has one more move. So when the enemy thought he had him cornered, his king still still had one more move. And I want to tell somebody in this church this morning that you thought it was over and you thought the marriage couldn't last and you thought your finances had run their course and you thought that there was no hope. The king still has one more move. Don't you give up and don't you surrender and don't you give the devil his due. It's not the time for you to get sluggish and slothful and quit. Your king still has one more move. When you get the proper perspective and you realize my life is not my own, that I belong to Him, and you surrender everything to Him, when you have given yourself to Him, you say, I don't have nothing to lose because if God didn't want me to have this, He wouldn't have brought me to this. He hasn't brought me this far to let me fall and let me me stumble and let me die. He has brought me this far because He's still got a move to make. And I know sometimes it feels like you're cornered and like you can't last, but I promise you, your King has not surrendered His throne. He's still exactly where He's supposed to be, and He's still got another move all those prodigal sons and daughters he's got another move to bring them back that marriage that looks like it's going to end in defeat he's got another move to bring it back that 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 financial collapse that you went through in that bankruptcy he's got another move all that that, them demons that you've been fighting and, and can't sleep at night he's got another move you rest easy surrender your whole self to your king he's got one more move He's got one more move. My God in heaven. He's got one. Y'all need to start waking up every morning and just start declaring that over yourself. He got one more move. Sometimes when you wake up, you just got to wipe the tears out of your eyes because you cried yourself to sleep. You need to remind yourself, devil, don't think that you're going to keep me in this bed today because my king's got one more move. Uh, Don't think that you're going to defeat me because my king's got one more move what looked like checkmate turned into a defeat for the enemy because the king still had one more